0: I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 35 to 37. If you're a bit cold this morning, I just want you to know that I watched a video just a few weeks ago of a baptism service in Russia where they had to break the ice open in the lake and dunk the people in the frozen water. So I have no pity for any of us this morning. (laughs) Let me, uh, let me read to you uh, Mark chapter 12 and uh, verses 35 to 37. Actually, I'm, I'm going to start from verse 28 just to give a little bit of context. Mark 12 verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered, that is Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So, how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, we ask that by your Spirit you would illumine our minds to understand the word, your truth, and that you would give us. Hearts that are soft and receptive to your word. Give us eyes of faith to believe your word and help us to live in light of your word. Father, we ask that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know the Lord Jesus, that by your spirit you withdraw them, convict them of their sin and cause them to see that they are in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. Do this for his sake and for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Who is Jesus might be the most controversial question of our day. If you were to ask people who uh, Muhammad is, you might get a few different responses. But for the most part, there would be a level of agreement on who Muhammad is. But if you were to ask people who is Jesus, you will end up receiving a multitude of different answers. Some will say he's simply a a historical figure who was Jewish. Others will say he's the white man's God used to gain power and control people, despite the fact that he was a Palestinian Jew. He was a prophet. He, he, He was actually a fictional character made up by people. He's the greatest of the moral gurus. Many people have different opinions, and of course there are others who say he's the Son of God. There is no person in human history that has created more opinions from people than Jesus Christ. Some hate him. Some seek to live their lives based upon his moral teachings. And some worship him as the Son of God, God in the flesh. And most of these opinions really have no significance for our lives. I mean, if if he was simply a historical figure, cool. I guess we can learn about him if you enjoy history. If he was some moral teacher, I guess you can practice some of his ethics. But the only claim that really has any significance or consequence is the claim that he was the son of of God, I mean, if he was the son of God, that changes everything. It means that God has walked among us in human flesh, which is precisely what the New Testament authors claim. You see, it's interesting that even in Jesus's day, there was much discussion and opinion about who Jesus was. Some believed him to truly be a prophet of God, some believed him to be a fraud, some even claimed that he was a servant of the devil, casting out demons by the power of demons. And then there were some who claimed him to be the Messiah, the anointed of God, the one who would, would reestablish the kingdom of David and deliver Israel from the oppression of Rome. You see, there was much discussion and opinion about who Jesus was, but also there was discussion in general about who the Messiah would be. And some of the thinking was correct regarding the Messiah, but some of it was also lacking. And here in Mark 12, 35 to 37, Jesus is going to infer something about the Messiah that would have surprised the majority of the Jews, especially the scribes. So remember, here in chapters 11 and 12, Jesus has engaged with different religious leaders within Israel over political and theological matters. And remember that they've primarily targeted him and and asked him questions in order to trap him, in order to trap him so that they could delegitimize his authority And his influence. And remember that they... But here, sorry, in verse 35 to 37, we see that the tables turn. Instead of Jesus being questioned, he now becomes the questioner. He, in a sense, puts them on trial. They've over and over again attempted to undermine his authority, and they, of course, have failed miserably. But now Jesus goes on the offensive by undermining their authority, by demonstrating that his understanding of the scriptures is far superior to theirs. Now, we're not told here in Mark um, specifically who Jesus was speaking to. We know that he was in the temple. We know that there were many people listening. But Mark doesn't specifically tell us who he was speaking to. But both Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus was in fact speaking with some of the scribes. And so he's addressing the scribes, some of the religious leaders, while there was also many common folk listening in in while in the temple courts. And what Jesus does, he in a sense, he puts before the religious leaders a riddle. And through this riddle, he infers two things about the Messiah and ultimately about himself. One, he speaks to the identity of the Messiah And secondly, he speaks to the triumph of the Messiah. So let's begin with the first, the identity of the Messiah. So verse 35 tells us that Jesus, while he was teaching in the temple, he asked a question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? That is the Messiah. The word Christ simply means the the Messiah, the anointed of God the one who will deliver Israel and reestablish the throne of David and and the kingdom of Israel. So how can the scribes say that that this Messiah is the son of David? Now, this question probably raised some eyebrows. It was common common knowledge that the Messiah, the Christ, would be a descendant of David. Remember, Jesus' triumphal entry in chapter 11. What is it that the people were proclaiming? Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. In Matthew's account, they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. They believed the kingdom of David was coming. Why? Because they believed his heir had arrived. The people, at least at that moment, believed Jesus to be the Son of David who would deliver Israel. It was a common held belief that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And the fact is, the people and the scribes were not wrong about that. Several places in the Old Testament convey this truth. Let me just give you one. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5 to 6, there's a prophecy, and this is what we read. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. You see, they were right to believe that the Messiah would be a son of David, from the lineage of David. And of course we know that Jesus actually does come from the lineage of David. In Matthew chapter 1, you can read the lineage of Christ, and it makes clear that Jesus was a descendant of David, and therefore, he was an heir to the throne of David. And so when Jesus says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David, he's not saying that they're wrong. He's not denying this truth. But the riddle he's going to put before them will infer that though it's true that the Christ will be the son of David, he's not merely the son of David. There's more to the Messiah than the scribes realize. In other words, they're not wrong that the Messiah is the son of David, but their knowledge of the Messiah is incomplete. Remember. They primarily saw the Messiah as a human, nationalistic, political figure who would deliver Israel from Roman oppression and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. Their view of the Messiah was too small. Not only in, in regards to the Messiah's identity, but also the work and the mission of the Messiah. Their understanding was incomplete, small, inadequate. He demonstrates this in verse 36 with his little riddle, so to speak. Look at verse 36. So how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now Jesus here quotes from Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm, which Jim read for us. And the scribes understood Psalm 110 to be a messianic psalm, and they were right to do so. Psalm 110 is about the coming of the Messiah. But what they didn't grasp was the fullness of the Messiah's identity in this psalm. Now notice, he says, Jesus says, David was in the spirit when he declared Psalm 110. That is What David proclaims in Psalm 110 was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, what is it that David said? Well, David articulates a divine conversation. He articulates a divine conversation that he was given access to by the Spirit of God. He's prophetically declaring a conversation, hear this, that God had with God. Okay? He's declaring a conversation that God had with God. That sounds weird. Okay, He's prophetically declaring a conversation that the Lord, that is Yahweh, the covenant name of God, had with David's Lord, Adonai. He's articulating a conversation between Yahweh God and the Messiah. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh said to my Adonai. Both These names, Yahweh and Adonai, were names of the one true God. In other words, God said to my God. Now that's a little confusing. Unless, of course, you have a proper understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, one God in three persons. So David says, The Lord Yahweh said to my Lord. Now, what is it that David says? The Lord said to his Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now we're going to come back to the theological significance of that statement, what the Lord said to David's Lord. But here's what we need to see what is it that David calls the Messiah? My Lord. My Lord. That's how Jesus interprets it according to verse 37. David himself. Calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So here's the theological controversy. Here's the dilemma or the riddle that Jesus puts before the scribes. How can the Messiah be David's son if David calls him my Lord, that is, my God? Or how can the Messiah be David's God if he is David's son? Moreover, How can God say to God, or the Lord say to my Lord? It seems as though there are two divine figures. But would this not undermine the idea that the Lord is one, which Jesus articulated in Mark 12, 29? Do you see the theological dilemma that Jesus has put before them? Do you see the riddle? it would seem that there is a scriptural, theological contradiction. The Messiah can't be David's Lord and at the same time be David's son. That just doesn't make any sense. There's just no explanation for that. Well, if the Messiah is merely human, then there is no explanation. But if he's more than human, then the riddle may be solved. Now, Jesus never actually gives them a solution to the question. But within Jesus's question and the quoting of Psalm 10, Psalm 110, Jesus is inferring something about the Messiah. He's implying that the Messiah is both human and divine. In his humanity, the Messiah is the son of David. A true descendant of David. In his divinity, the Messiah is David's Lord. In his divinity, he is David's God. See, we know that Jesus doesn't directly say it, but he's, of course, implying this about himself. That he is a son of David, but he is also David's Lord based upon the reality that he is divine. You see, the solution to the riddle, the only way the riddle can be solved is if Jesus is understood as the Son of God incarnate who is humanly born of the lineage of David. The riddle that Jesus puts forth is the mystery of the incarnation. Listen to how Wynandi puts it. The Messiah is the human son of David, and he is also David's Lord because he is the Father's divine son. And so as the Father's son, both he and the Father equally share the same divine title, that is Lord. This is the doctrine of the mystery of the Incarnation. Jesus is the divine son of God. He is the second person of the one triune God father son and holy spirit one god in three persons and as the divine son of god he shares the same essence as the father and the holy spirit and jesus as the son of god entered into human history by becoming fully human while remaining fully divine In His humanity, He is a descendant of David. In His divinity, He is David's God. In His humanity, He is the Son of Mary. In His divinity, He is Mary's God. This is what Christianity has proclaimed from the beginning. This is what we proclaimed earlier in our service in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. Remember how Paul begins his articulation of the gospel in Romans chapter 1? This is what Paul says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then he says this, concerning his son. Whose son? God's son. The gospel of God concerning God's Son. But then Paul says this, Who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel of God is about the Son of God but also the one who descended from David according to the flesh. This is why, for example, in the Gospels, Jesus says certain things that imply his divinity. For example, in John eight fifty eight, the Jews are in a discussion with Jesus, and they're claiming Abraham as their father. And Jesus responds to them with saying, Before Abraham was... I am. Before Abraham ever existed, I am. And that word, I am, is the same word that God uses to identify himself with Moses in Exodus. I am that I am. That's my name. Or Luke 10, 18, where Jesus, speaking to his disciples about the demons submitting to them, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What? What? Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. How? Because he was there when it happened. You see, there are things Jesus does and says in the Gospels that if he were merely human, it would, if he were merely a human Messiah, it would be immoral for him to do such things or make such demands. He claims to have the authority to forgive the sins of others. Even the Pharisees know that's reserved for God alone. Think about it. Think about someone who has wronged you greatly. Now imagine being in a room with that person and with Jesus and a bunch of other people and Jesus walks up to that man and says, your sins are forgiven. The man who wronged you. You would think, who does this guy think he is? He died. I haven't forgiven him. And Jesus looks at you and goes, I don't need you to forgive him. I'm God. I have the authority to forgive any man or any woman of their sins. He demands also absolute devotion and allegiance from his followers. Matthew ten thirty seven: Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You and I know that any mere human ruler that demands a greater devotion to his rule, a greater love over one's own family, is immoral. We call people like that dictators. Which means, if Jesus is at best a human king or even a prophet, he is wicked for demanding such devotion. There is only one who can demand a greater devotion than family, and that's God alone. You see, Jesus, through his question and reference to Psalm 110, he is claiming to be the Messiah who is both Son of David and Lord of David. So that's the identity of the Messiah. And now we come to the second truth that Jesus infers, which is the triumph of the Messiah. Jesus, in quoting Psalm 110, includes not just the fact that David calls him Lord, he also describes the triumph of the Messiah. You see this in the phrase, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now I want you to notice who's speaking to who, right? God is speaking to the divine Messiah, the eternal Father is speaking to his eternal Son, and he declares... Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That is, sit right at at my right hand beside my throne. Now, what is this referring to? Well, I think it's referring to two things, but they're inseparable. One, I think it's referring to the triumph of the Messiah in his priestly work of redemption by his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So let me say that again. It's referring to the triumph of the Messiah in his priestly work of redemption by his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. That's implied in the statement, sit at my right hand. God the Father, in light of his Son's victory over sin, death, and the devil, through his own death on the cross for sin and his resurrection and ascension, says to his Son, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. You've been triumphant. Your priestly work is complete. It is accomplished. The New Testament affirms this. For example, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, when he's speaking to the crowds, in Acts 2, 29-36, he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That's from Psalm 16. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being, hear this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, and Peter now concludes that therefore he has been exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says, and now he quotes Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Christ, or Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. So do you see what Peter's doing here? Peter interprets this passage from Psalm 110 as referring to the ascension of Jesus, and God has declared that Jesus is both Lord and Christ because he died and rose from the dead. That's his priestly work. Hebrews 1, 1 1-4 alludes to the same reality. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then he says this, after making purification for sins, that's his priestly work, after he did that act, After he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Psalm 110, his triumph. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he he made purification for sins and the father says to him, come and sit down at my right hand. Hebrews 10, 12-13 says the same thing. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, His priestly work, what did He do? He then sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemy should be made a footstool for His feet. See, Psalm 110 is used all throughout the New Testament. See, because of Christ's priestly work, as being the supreme sacrifice for sin, by which he defeated sin, death, and the devil, he sat down at the right hand of the Father as God's declaration of victory for the Messiah. This was the triumph of Jesus Christ. But this statement is not only referring to the triumph of the Messiah in his redemptive priestly work. It's also a reference to to the ultimate triumph of the Messiah as the King who prevails over His enemies with His divine, holy judgment. That's what's implied when God says to His Son, Until I put your enemies under your feet. Because Christ has triumphed in His priestly work, God has promised to subdue and place all His enemies under His rule. And this we ultimately see fulfilled in the return of the Messiah, not as a priest to make sacrifice for sins, but as a king to deliver all his citizens and to destroy all his enemies. God has promised to place all Christ's enemies under his feet. See, this here is speaking of divine judgment, which is ultimately fulfilled in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and here's the, thi- here's the thing: Psalm 110 alludes to both the triumph of the Messiah in his priestly work and the triumph of the Messiah in destroying his enemies as the King of all. So let me let me read to you Psalm 110. I, I invite you to turn there. Psalm 110, which which uh, Jim read for us. It begins with verse 1, right? right which, which Jesus quotes. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord send, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer them, themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And then see this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 is already speaking to the priestly work of the Messiah. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now we're not going to get into Melchizedek this morning. That's another sermon in eternity when I get answers from God about who Melchizedek is. But he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then he says this. So that's his priestly work. Then he says this, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. You see it? Psalm 110 speaks to both the triumph of the Son as the priest, but also as the king who judges his enemies. The M- Messiah's triumph, triumphant work as priest is described here and the Messiah's triumphant work as the righteous king who judges his enemies is described here. This is what it means when God says, "I will make your enemies your footstool." So Jesus by bringing up Psalm 110 is inferring to the scribes that the Messiah is not only the son of David, but he is also the divine Lord of David. And by implication, he's alluding to them that he is in fact the Lord of David. But he's also subtly giving them a warning. They know how Psalm 110 is messianic, and they know that the Messiah will one day destroy his enemies, as Psalm 110 explains. And Jesus is saying, if you reject me, you'll be making yourself an enemy of the Messiah. Danger awaits. You see, if what Jesus is saying about himself, if it is true that he's not only a descendant of David, but the Lord and God of David, and that he has triumphed over sin and death by sacrificing himself on the cross where he died for sin in the place of sinners, and that he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven as the triumphant one, and is currently sitting at his Father's right hand, where he will return as king over all, and all his enemies will be placed under his feet. If all that is true, which I believe it is, there are some major implications for every single one of us. There are eternal consequences for how we respond to such realities. See, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know that there's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. Jesus doesn't allow for you to accept him as a moral teacher or prophet. His claims demand you to decide whether he is Lord or whether he is an immoral monster. C.S. Lewis, who was once an atheist and became a follower of Jesus, reflecting on this reality, said this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. I'm ready to accept him, to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You either fall down at his feet and call him Lord and God or you believe him to be a wicked, immoral deceiver. He didn't leave any of us room for us to land somewhere in the middle. But understand, there are eternal consequences depending on how you respond to him. You rejecting him as Lord means that in the end, you will be one of his enemies that will be placed under his feet. There's no way to water this down or to soften it or shy away from it. This is not a popular teaching today, even by many professing Christians. But the scriptures make clear that those who reject Christ as Lord will in the end be placed under his feet in judgment. Because you have defied rejected, rebelled, and sinned against the Lord of all creation, the one who created you, the one who sustains your very life right now. But that doesn't have to be your end. If only you might humble yourself before the king. You see, one day Jesus will come as king to wage war against his enemies, but he already came as priest to die for the sins of everyone who will but repent and believe upon him. That is, surrender to his lordship. In his death, he conquered sin and death, so that in him you might find the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. He died so that you may be called his friend and not his foe. He is the Lord of all. And he right now sits at the right hand of God, but he's coming again. Will you be ready? Listen, there are a lot of things to be afraid of in life. People right now are afraid of government overreach. But I can promise you, the most terrifying thing that you could ever experience is to stand before the Lord of the universe and not be on his side. You want to be on the right side of history by being on the side of the Lord of history. I also want to speak to those of us who are followers of Jesus, who have experienced salvation in Jesus. Remember this. Believe this. Hold fast to this. The enemies of Christ and by extension, the enemies of His people, in the end, do not win. Though in our lifetime, the enemies of Christ may seem to be taking ground, in the end, remember, they do not win. God has promised to place all of the enemies of Christ under His feet, and therefore He has promised to place all of Christ's enemies under our feet. Therefore, do not fear the advancement of the enemies of Christ. If they advance, it's only temporary. If we know that the enemies of Christ do not win, then it should enable us and empower us to live with a sense of calm and even peace in the midst of chaos. The story ends with Christ triumphant over his enemies and his people triumphant over his enemies. And so as our society continues to morally decline and continues to grow in its hostility to our Christian faith, remember this Christ will prevail. As Matthew Malachi 4:1, one, uh, chapter 4 1 to 3 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You're going to be set free and you're going to be rejoicing like a calf coming out of the stall. And hear this. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, brothers and sisters, do not fear even if the earth gives way. The nations will rage. The kingdoms will totter. But hear this. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your son. Who is both the son of David and the Lord of David. We thank you that he is also the triumphant priest who conquered sin and death and that through repentance and faith in him we too conquer sin and death and we give you thanks that he is also the triumphant king that one day you will place all his enemies under his feet and that you will vindicate your people and that you will one day establish righteousness upon the earth, peace and truth. We look forward to that day. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not ready for that day, that they would bow their knee to the Lord Jesus who died so that they might have everlasting life. Do this, Lord, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.